Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best lives. I'm Jenny Taylor. And I'm Michelle Scharf. Jenny, today I'm really excited because we have another Jen on Jen Zwink, and she actually had me on her podcast recently, and it's called 180 Widow. It's very much a podcast (laughs) similar to ours, and yeah, hi, welcome to our show. I'm so excited to have you on. (laughs) Hi, Jenny. Hello. Great to have you you here, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. So how did you two find each other? Let's get the the backstory first. Michelle, how'd you find Jen, or Jen, did you find Michelle? No, she found me. I love it. Okay. Yeah. How did you find us? I found your podcast first. And then I listened to a couple of episodes and I said, oh, my gosh, I have got to talk to these ladies. (laughs) And I found you on Instagram. And then I messaged you on Instagram to please be a guest on Widow 180, the podcast. And then you responded right away. I was so happy to get in touch with you. And, yeah, we just had your episode in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. And it's really resonated with a lot of people. So thank you so much for sharing your story. Oh, thank you. It was really interesting to be on the other side of that mic. I'll tell you that a lot of emotions came up. You yeah. were recording it in Zoom. I'm crying and blubbering <laughs> on, <laughs> on on video. And it was very vulnerable. It was an interesting experience to be on the opposite side of the microphone. Yeah, I know the rest yeah. of us look forward to listening to that, Michelle. So we'll have to make sure we link that. And Jen, where do you call home? Where is it you're calling from? I am about an hour outside of New Orleans. So I'm an hour north of New Orleans in Louisiana. South Louisiana. Which you can hear by that sweet little accent. Yep, I love it. Just hear a little bit. (laughs) I love it. It's so fun. I had a grandmother one time that was from Louisiana and I loved listening to her talk. Although she was like a Cajun, like it was a heavy, thick, like sometimes we didn't know what she was talking about. We just stared at her. (laughs) I know. Sure, Grandma. Yeah, it's like, oh. Yeah, that even just like two hours from here, the accent is completely different. It's funny. Yeah. Wow. It's really interesting. Well, we are super (laughs) excited to have you on. Tell us, what does resiliency mean to you? I have given this a lot of thought. (laughs) And Resiliency, there are so many factors that go into being resilient. And just based on my experience, you know, based on your experience. And when you think about being resilient, the very nature of being resilient 
it means that you've been through something hard, right? Yeah. Something negative, something bad, a bad situation, either hurt or some kind of hardship, a loss of a loved one, illness, job loss, some type of injury. Yeah. You've been through something really bad that brought you to your knees. But we only know true resilience because of these unfortunate circumstances that we go through. And when we think about being resilient and the word resilient, you know, we all want that for ourselves. We want to believe that we will be able to get through trying times. And it's something that we strive for, but we just don't know how we're going to react to certain things until we actually go through those terrible things. So resiliency for me, when I think about my experience, when I think about all of the widows that I have talked to, so I am just speaking in terms of loss, but there are a few key things that factor into resilience and boosting resilience and how you could be a more resilient person and what's worked for me along the way. So the first one I would say would be that grief takes energy. And I'm sure you guys can agree with that. Yes. You know, grief takes a lot of energy. You've been through all of these heightened emotions with the loss, whether it was a sudden loss or whether you were taking care of your spouse, but you're transferring that energy, then it gets built up inside of you because you don't know where to put it. And so when you are trying to pick yourself up after being knocked down, you have to take care of yourself. In the best way that you can, you have to focus on physically, emotionally, spiritually, all of these different things. Take work and energy in order to take care of yourself. So being resilient means taking care of yourself, means eating the right things, moving your body, be out in nature, get some sun, you know, push yourself to take care of yourself because no one else can do that for you. And, you know, we have our loved ones. We have other people that try to help, but it's a personal thing, right? And you have to find what works for you. And it's different for everyone. Yeah, it really is. It is. Like walking was huge for me. What things are you going to focus on that are healthy, that are good coping skills, good coping mechanisms? And there are tons of those out there, but it's very easy to fall into those traps of the things that actually numb us. And so I think that, you know, number one, being resilient just means taking care of yourself and focusing on doing the right steps in the right direction, journaling, getting your emotions out in a healthy way. Yeah. So that is kind of number one, but Number two on my list of key factors for being resilient is having the belief in yourself that you will get through your circumstance and that you will get through the hardship, the challenges that you're going through. Resilience, just like with so many other things in life, it's a choice, I think. We can choose to be resilient or not, you know. We can choose to allow those circumstances to keep us down. Yeah. And we can choose to not let it overtake us. 
I love what Mm -hmm. you're saying about that resistance because we often, Jenny and I often talk about how resiliency is a muscle that you have to use. Yeah. But a couple things to that, like you don't go out and just run your first marathon, right? You've got to train, you've got to build up. So there are things that we can do in our life when life is going along good. We can take care of ourselves. We can journal. We can make sure that we're exercising, eating well, taking good care of our situation, right? But then Mm -hmm. that helps us when life happens. And unfortunately, life happens unannounced. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's great along the way. I love that you're talking about it along the way, but also Mm -hmm. um, resilience being the resistant, the thing that happens to us that then gives us an opportunity to see how we've built that strength. And I will say some of those numbing out things, I think they're very normal. I don't want anyone listening to this to feel shame or guilt about where they're at. I did not heal well for the first four months. And luckily I had somebody who spoke to my heart and I took it to heart and I started realizing I'm going to have to feel these feelings and I'm not going to escape this. I might as well do it now rather than make the situation worse. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, sometimes the sleeping, the not eating good food or not eating at all or whatever after tragedy, some of those things are normal But at some point, you've got to say, okay, I've got to push myself to eat. I've got to start taking care of myself in order to then exercise that strength of resilience, right? Right. Definitely. There is a period of, I mean, it's grief, right? It's it's not wanting to get out of the bed some days. That's a part of the big picture of it, unfortunately. Yeah. But it is something that that we all go through. So. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So tell us, who is Jen Zwick before her story? Like, who were you? What were you doing in life? Tell us the early parts of your story. My husband, Brent, we were in optometry school together. Oh, wow. And yeah, so we were both optometrists and starting our family and, you know, just living our innocent naive little lives in the suburbs and life was normal and life was good. And I appreciated every bit of what I had, you know, Mm -hmm. I really did. Mm -hmm. I, I told him that I, I appreciated every day with him. It was just a good life, you know? So Um, how old were you when you guys married? I was 28. Oh, so a little bit older. Yeah. I mean, yeah, in, you, so in we, Utah, that's ancient, by the way. <laughs> like, if you're not married at 18 or 20 around here, like, like 10 years later, 28, oh, that's that's old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just we, for reference. We, <laughs> we met in optometry school. We, we didn't get married until we finished optometry school. So that was a lot of school. That's a lot and, of school. Um, yeah. yeah, so we finished and graduated and got married and then... And then started our family and, you know, we, we had Claire and we were talking about expanding our family even more, but yeah, he ended up, we were, um, I don't know. Do you want me to get into my story yeah, right now? Well, like that part or, you know what, go ahead and, and yeah, we want to hear your story. So this was, uh, October 15th of 2011. And 
Brent had, he had been invited to go to a bachelor party in New Orleans. And we, you know, he, he really didn't want to go. He was kind of a homebody kind of guy. He never went out and he loved staying home with his girls. Claire was only two at the time. And this party was on a Saturday night. We had both worked that day. And I told him, I said, just go have a good time. You know, you never really go out, go and have fun. And he said, okay, you know, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and go. And he um, was staying the night downtown in New Orleans for the party and had a hotel. And so he called me, you know, he got dressed, left the house at like five o'clock to go and meet the guys. And he gave me a quick kiss and said, Hey, how do I look? You know, I'm like, Oh, you look great. Have a good time. You know, kiss goodbye. Ran out the door. And yeah, so he called me on the way. It was about a 45 minute drive to get to downtown New Orleans. And we talked the whole way on the phone, which was really nice. We had a nice long conversation and he went to the party. He said he was going to text me when he got back to the hotel room. And, um, and so I, you know, I said, okay, have a good time. And then um, I went to sleep that night. Nothing really like I, I, for whatever reason, I did wake up at around five o'clock in the morning and I looked at my phone and there was no text. I just assumed maybe he was still out or maybe he had, um, you know, he had forgotten. I don't know if he had a couple of drinks or whatever. Right. And so, yeah, he, he didn't, you know, he didn't respond. I ended up texting him in the morning, I guess about eight o'clock or so and no response. And then he was supposed to come home at around 10 because the Saints game was going to start at noon. He didn't, he didn't come home 10 o'clock. He didn't come home at 11 o'clock by noon. When the game started, I was, I was thinking, okay, I, I need to get in touch with somebody. I started texting the guys that he was with the night before and I just said, hey, is he? did you guys go to breakfast? Did you go somewhere? I haven't heard from him. And he said, let me go and check the hotel room and see if he went back to the room. Then he texted me and said, it doesn't look like he came back to the room. And we haven't seen him since, you know, around 4.30. He left the bar. Oh, my goodness. And Jen, and, I, mm-hmm. we are on a cliffhanger. I need to take a break. When we come back, okay. we'll, we'll, we'll start right here. I'm super excited to see where this is going. My heart's pounding. We'll be right back. Yeah. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back, Jen. Oh my gosh, so... Now he's never made it back to the hotel. The guys haven't seen him. No. So this was, you know, around noon on Sunday when I was talking to him and his friend said, I want you to take the baby over to, um, to your parents' house. 
and then come down here, come downtown. He said, I'm going to go to the police station and we're going to retrace some steps and see if we can find him. And so I was did, just, did they have that, like a, just like, well, hold on a second. Like they're all together, right? Like, did he make it down there? Did he? Yeah, he, he did. He had left the bar. The guys told me the last time they saw him was about 4.30 in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning, and he had left the bar by himself because he was, he was tired. He wasn't, he wasn't like a party guy, right? Right. So he just really wanted to go home, and the guys still wanted to stay out. So they um, stayed, and he waved to them, and he said, hey, I'm going, and, and, and then that was the last time that they saw him. Oh, my goodness early in the morning, about five o'clock. So, yeah, I just was in shock and I said, okay, I'll call my parents, which fortunately they live like, you know, 30 minutes away. So I brought Claire over there and my dad came with me. I grabbed a couple of pictures of Brent just to bring to the police. So I headed downtown and went to the hotel The police were there. They were, you know, going out and talking to the bartenders, trying to find videotape of, you know, the outside of the bar and things like that. So they were talking to bartenders. Nobody really still had any answers. We ended up tracing his phone to, it took hours, right? We were trying, we were on the phone with Sprint and trying to get help. And finally, we were able to trace his phone to a junkyard that was about three miles from the last place that he was seen. Oh, my goodness. And so we all got in our cars. Now, this was probably at about nine o'clock at night Mm. by this point on Sunday night. So we go to the junkyard and there's all of the police are there. My dad was there. Brent's friends were there and we had, they have this like, you know, big barbed wire fence and barbed wire all along the top of the fence. And there's like pit bulls and Rottweilers and things like barking underneath the fence and it's dark and they couldn't get in touch with the owner because it was late Sunday night. So we couldn't actually get into the junkyard. And so they called the fire department to come out, and the fire department came out. They put their big ladder up so that it kind of leaned over the junkyard. And they had these big spotlights, and they were shining down. And it was huge. It's just like a massive junkyard, you know. And they're shining their lights, and then they would turn off the lights, and they would say, okay, Jennifer, we want you to call his number, and we're going to look for the phone to see if we could see it light up when it, when we call. So we did that just several times. It was like over and over. And then they would try and do the spotlight thing. And I think, you know, the time is kind of tricky for me just remembering, but I want to say we probably did that for about an hour and a half. And then the fire department started to leave. And then the police started to leave. And this was like 11 PM, I guess. And, a couple of the detectives came up to me and they said, um, okay, we really just think you should go home and get some rest and just let us do our job. And I was like, what? I'm like, I can't leave here. I'm like, everybody's leaving. 
we can't just leave here. I don't have my husband. I'm not leaving. I'm not going home. And I'm sure not going to be resting. Like you're telling me, go home and get some sleep. Go home and get some sleep. And yeah. Just, uh, like you can just set job. that aside. Sure. You're like, my husband's been yeah. missing all day and this is not yeah. like him. Yeah. He didn't even want to go in the first place. He went out to support he his buddy. Now he's gone and I can't find him. Like somebody help me. This is a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So, so we left and my dad was like, we should just go. And I'm like, no, I, I, but there was no way that I could get into the junkyard. There was no lights. It was just dark. I mean, there's these dogs in there. So I certainly couldn't do anything myself, even though I wanted to stay there. So we left and then I went to my parents' house and my parents, you know, they live about 30 minutes away, but we had the back bedroom where Claire and I were sleeping and my mom had set up a little nightlight in there so that Claire wouldn't be scared. Cause again, she was only two. Yeah. So we get back to the house and I go back into the bedroom. And of course there's no way I'm resting, sleeping, any of that. I was a nervous wreck. You know, I was shaking. I just was having trouble breathing, just sitting in the bed next to her. And I saw kind of out of the corner of my eye, I was saying repeatedly over and over again, I just said, Brent, give me a sign. I need a sign. I need to know that you're okay. Please give me a sign. I need a sign. Give me a sign. (laughs) Just like over and over, like, give me a sign. And out of the corner of my eye, there was a shadow from this little nightlight that my mom had set up and it was casting a shadow on the wall and it was his silhouette. Like it was just his full silhouette, head to toe. And I looked at it and I was like, nope. I'm like, I, I don't like that sign. Give me another sign. I need yeah, a different sign a different that you're okay. Just give me a different sign. And I looked back over at this shadow and I was just like, okay, you know, like this is it. This is it. It was him telling me that this is the reality of what was happening and that he was, he was gone. And my head just kept saying over and over again, no, he's in jail. No, he went wherever. Like I was trying to just rationalize and make sense of things. And in my heart, it was like, this is really what's happening and he's really gone. So it, uh, of course, like I said, did not sleep all night. And then we ended up getting a call at eight o'clock in the morning on Monday from the coroner's office. And the coroner's office told us to come down um, because they suspected that they had found Brent Mm. and, and they wanted me to come down there and identify him. And um, so I went with my parents and my brother came with me. My brother's a couple of years younger than me. So I was 35 at the time when this happened. So, um, and Brent was only 36. So we went downtown, we went to the coroner's office and we walked in and they had this big, long conference table and the coroner person was sitting there and, and there was a picture that was like a headshot, but it was face down on the table. And I went to sit down 
and my parents were standing next to me and he just slid the picture across the table and he said, we don't want to believe that this is your husband, but we have every, you know, suspicion, whatever that it is. And so he flipped the picture over and I saw him and then he flipped it right back over again and he pulled it away. And I said, I I said, well, I want to, I want to see it again. And he, and he said, no, he's like, you don't, you don't need to see that again. And I said, well, is he here? Is he in this building? You know, like, I want to see him. My mind did not want to believe what was happening. Like I just wanted that proof and I needed the proof and the picture wasn't, it wasn't enough for me. And he said, um, well, he's in another building and we can't do that. And, and I just, you know, I said, I said, okay, I don't, I don't know if they're even that even true. Like if I had pushed it and said, Hey, I really want to see him. Like if he would have said yes, but I don't think I could have left without like, I think I would have had to touch his body to let my body know. know, Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't even know how you get to that. I, I, this is a bigger story than I had bargained for. Like this is, this could be made into a television movie. I mean, this is like the stuff you see in movies that are written about, not, not from people that you know and, and have experienced. I, I can't imagine. So you're sitting there. They don't want to show you the picture. What happens at that point? Do you just accept it? Yeah. And I don't like I really don't know to this day. I don't know. I don't know what the rules are. If I had been really persistent and really pushed it and said, no, I am not leaving this place until I see him. But I didn't. I was like, look, I was in such shock. and I was in such total body shock. What was happening when he showed me that picture? Like he flipped over the picture and I said, no. I'm like, no, that's not him. We're supposed to be going to the pumpkin patch today. That's mm-hmm. literally what I told this man. I said, no, that you know, we're we're busy today. <laughs> we have to go to the. We're, we have plans to go to the pumpkin patch because we were. That's what we were supposed to do that day. We were going to go to the pumpkin patch and carve pumpkins with Claire. And I just said those words, and then I just, you know, he said no, like I couldn't see him in the building and so we left yeah so wait a second so they've they've at least nominally confirmed that your husband is deceased and then they sent you home did they give you any explanation of what they think happened or piece of story cause of death time of death anything or they just said here's a picture that's him go home well that part of it they did but then we had been contacted by a detective i think shortly after the coroner got in touch with us the detective also got in touch with us and there were two or three detectives that were put on the case. And so they were fantastic. And within a day, we had a lot more answers because they did end up finding the video. They had a lot of video footage that they went through. They had talked to several people. And what happened was Brent had left the bar and he had several drinks, right? But he left the bar, and so he turned left, and he should have turned right to go to the hotel. But he turned left, and when he did, he was followed by a person when he left the bar, and this person followed him, and Brent took the left and went down this very dark street instead of going right, and it was this dark part of the street, and this person mugged him, 
and they hit him on the head. They took his wallet. They took his phone. So he had no identification. And then they just left him on the sidewalk. So he was like a block and a half away from his friends. But somebody came walking by shortly after this happened, found him on the sidewalk, and then, of course, called 911. The ambulance came to pick him up. And from what I was told, he had pretty much passed away, like, instantly. So he, he was already gone by the time they got him to the hospital. But when they got him to the hospital, you know, he had no identification. He had no phone. He was just a John a Doe. That they, yeah. So how was they brought in. that not the police's first suspect when you showed up the next day and said, my husband was at this bar in this neighborhood and then I never saw him again? I guess maybe they're just not allowed to tell you they had a missing exactly. unidentified body at the exact same time you had a missing person. I have learned this part of it, too, like, because I did call hospitals that night before we ended up going to the junkyard. I was on the phone with hospitals trying to call and ask if anyone had been brought in, even if they did know that he was there, they are not allowed to give you that information over the phone. And I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know that. And And that's tricky where it gets to be privacy. I'm, I'm kind of shocked Sprint let you track his phone, to be honest, because they did not. Well, you said eventually Sprint or how did you, how did you ping his phone that first night? I had his, (laughs) I know I had his friend, um, impersonate him oh, on the phone okay. and I, phone. I had to give him, yep. And I had to okay. give him the, his social security number. And then he got on the phone with Brent and said, Hey, this is Brent. I'm looking blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Cause I, so we, tr- we tried, we tried, but of course, oh, again, yeah. Privacy information. They can't give you that yeah. information. So we had to we go that. around it. We ran into that with my husband, his phone. I still can't get into his phone. He had changed his passcode. Uh, when he, he came home, he was killed while he was deployed with the Army. He came home on leave, and he changed his passcode because at the time, our little kids were getting older, and his phone passcode had been the same pin to his little small nightstand gun safe, and which clearly is uh. not a safe idea once the kids knew the phone passcode. So he changed everything. He told me what the pin is, and it's a piece of my memory that's just completely gone. I, I don't – I remember uh. him telling me there was a new pin. I don't remember the four or six numbers. And so we've gone back and forth with Apple a thousand times, death certificate, yeah. everything to say, I just want his photos and things, but they, privacy, they say they can't and won't and no way. And so that's, that, yes. that, that caught my attention when you said that about Sprint, but what a story that you wouldn't even want to watch on television, Michelle. It, I know. It's horrible. And Jen, I'm so sorry to hear this is your reality, but thank you for sharing this with us. I think we're going to take a break for a minute while we all kind of catch our breath. And, sure. and process this a bit and then come back and, and, and tell us what happens next because this is clearly not the end. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back and our heads are spinning, Jen. Um, we're devastated for you. We're Michelle and I are no stranger to grief and widowhood. And even still, the two of us are thinking, I, this can't be true. This can't be real. It's a lot. All the different pieces. So you've now 
at least nominally identified your husband through a very fast look at a photo from the coroner. They send you home. What happens next in something like this where there's not the hospital after or the hospice after cancer where you've anticipated death or, in my case, the Army owned my husband's body till they brought him back to me? What happens when you leave that coroner's office and where is Claire? Where are your parents? Where's your husband's family? Can you walk us through those next steps? Yeah. So then it's immediately jumping into planning a funeral. You know, I I mean, I had to contact his family all lives in Minnesota. And so, um, of course, I had contacted like the immediate family, the actual night that he was missing. Um, But yeah, then it was just getting on the phone with all of his friends and extended family and all of and are you making these calls gonna have to come yes that was my question too. oh my goodness i can't even imagine you making those calls maybe to the parents and then after that say dad mom brother here's the list i cannot do that i can't believe that strength for you to have to be able to do that in that moment what I remember, because he, he has friends, like, all across the country, right? Like, everybody kind of went to college and then scattered. And so I just remember making all of those calls to his friends and saying he went out on Saturday, he was mugged, and their immediate question was, okay, what hospital is he in? Like, they were going to, like, book flights and come in to see him. Like, what hospital is he in? And I, And every time I'm like, no, you know, he's not in a hospital. I'm like, he... He didn't make it. And I just kept having to say that just over and over again, you know. And so, of course, everyone's just in shock. But, yeah, oh, my goodness. I just and going into the funeral home and seeing all the pictures on the wall. I remember this part of, like, older people, you know. There's, like, pictures up on the wall when you're picking out the urn and you're picking out the whatever you have to pick out when we met with the funeral director and I'm just like, yeah, but they're old. Like yeah. this, that picture is what it's supposed to be. You know, I just remember focusing on those pictures on the wall. Like that was kind of traumatic for me too. But so yeah, so we got through the funeral and that was the following week. I chose not to bring Claire with me cause I did not want her to see her dad that way. That and you did week. eventually see yeah. him once he was yeah. released from the corner. Not until, yeah, not until Friday morning. So that I had wow. last seen him the Saturday before, and then I actually saw him at the funeral home Friday morning at eight a.m. when it opened. They let us go in there to see him, and I was there. Like I was, it, it was so weird because it was like it's Christmas morning. Like I'm waking up and I'm getting dressed and hurrying up over to the funeral home so that I can go and see him, you know. Um, what was that moment you know, like surreal. for you? You had your family around you? You, I did, yeah. And I had, like, my brother was on one side, and then my brother-in-law was on the other side of me. And we just walked in because I was like, I, I might pass out. Yeah, right. You know, I just need I just need somebody Very standing next to me because I might not make it through this. And they... Um, they were there. We all walked in. It was, and then I told them, I said, I just, I, I want a few minutes with him, like by myself. And so they did that for me. Everybody stepped out and I just, 
sat in there for, I don't even know, like the longest time. And it was hard for me to look at him, but I put my hand on his head and I just was like, you know, petting his head and, um, and just had some time with him. And I just kept saying over and over, like, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. You know, I'm like, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. There's just no reason. There's no sense about any of it. Yeah. And so you're um, having this funeral, but there was a wedding. I mean, he went out the week before. Was this wedding planned for that week or the next week or later on? No, it was actually like three months later. Oh, that's good. Yeah, like four months later. Like they did it early. Wow. That is so insane. I can't imagine what that night then overshadows for that family as well. I know. I know. That's the ripple effect. Like you said, and your husband's got friends all across the country and they're all mm-hmm. now in shock and you're you're in shock. So you're there and you're alone with him. You're patting his head. Totally get it. Like I've lost other people before my husband. For me, touching a body is, is like for my brain, permission for my brain to release this person from this life, right? Like it's, yeah. it's, it's a way for me to understand they are gone because there's nothing like touching a, a dead body. They're cold. They're stiff. They're not there. Lifeless. And um, so you're there and you're patting his head. Are you like, is he look like himself? Are you like able to process it in that moment for yourself? Or are you still going, this is not happening. This is not real. Does he look like him? He did. He did. And the... Actually, so one of the things that I do remember, too, was the funeral director who was about our age, like he was 35-ish, and I remember him saying, you know, his his injuries were not that bad, and he said, just like a couple of broken bones, like he was telling me all these details, and so when I, when I went in to actually see him, it's like you said, like, okay, I did not touch, I, I, I think I did, I tried to like put my hand on his hand, and that just creeped me out too bad. So by me, like, petting his hair, like, that just felt the same, right? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> right, because hair doesn't have life in the first place. Right. right. So I was just sitting, that's what I would, that's what I, that's what gave me comfort in that moment. You know, like, I was like, I'm not going to put my hand on his hand because that doesn't feel right. And for me to, like, pet his cheek or something, like, that doesn't feel right either. But for me to, like, pet his hair, that felt normal. Anyway, but... I know. I just, again, it was like the reality of what was happening. I still like, I'm like, it's still just, it was, I was still in shock. Of course, it was like weeks of that. Well, you're going to be in shock. Really happening? The the grief that you would anticipate from losing someone. But now, like Michelle said, you're involved in a, a crime situation. Yeah. Where it's not like you now go home and try to figure out your own thoughts and feelings and next steps, but you've got, I imagine legal or yeah. d- did they find the people that killed your husband? Were you involved in any yeah. court cases or things? Can you talk to that? I mean, again, that is just so, Michelle says, I can't imagine. I don't want to imagine. Right. I mean, that's horrific. And yet it's your reality. So if you're willing to share that story with us, I think it will be really impactful yeah. for those of us that feel like this stuff doesn't really happen. Except, unfortunately, it, it does. does. Yeah. 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 
So the detectives, like I said, they were amazing. They were finding his wallet down like in sewers and crawling around. I mean, they did a fantastic job and they kept in touch with us regularly, which was, it was just, it was awesome that they did a great job, but they did end up tracking down the person that did this. And this guy left the city. He tried to leave the city. He got on a bus. They had video of him getting on the bus. He went up to Missouri and he tried to stay with relatives, but his relatives, turned him in oh, wow. and so they were able to get him back to new orleans and this all took several weeks yeah. so it didn't happen it didn't happen right away but they they did end up getting him back to the city and he was put in jail immediately and then we had the whole process of is this going to go to trial are we going to have to go to court are we going to when is that date happening they were trying to gather more evidence and that takes time it takes a lot of time one thing that i had not anticipated was how long that was going to take and i I mean i get it i get it right like we want everything to be perfect and in order and presenting all of the right evidence and and key witnesses and things like that um so it is what it is right like it's it's a process and so we would have a trial date set and then that would get postponed Mm. and then another and then another one would be set and then that would be postponed and we're talking like three or four months increments so you know i would build myself up to try and be ready for a trial date and then it would get postponed and then i would have that on the back of my mind, like that's coming up. Okay. Then it would get postponed again. And this went on for four years. Talk four, four years. years. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let me ask a we're couple both in I know, right here. We're, we're clearly going to come back years. for episode yeah. two. Um, but before we wrap up this, this first part of the conversation, can I ask a couple questions about day to day? Were you still working at this time? And where is Claire in these first couple of years? Claire was in her little daycare because, yeah, she was still two at the time. And she was going to just a lady's house in the neighborhood from like nine to three. I had tried to go back to work. I had taken off some time, about six weeks or so. And then I went back to work, but that did not work out well for me. I had a very hard time concentrating and I love seeing patients and I loved my job and I, I, really cared about my patients, but trying to go back to work and be so focused on patient care, it was very difficult for me, very difficult. So unfortunately, I I ended up resigning and, and leaving my office. I had been in that office for 10 years or nine years or so, and I I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And I did not like myself for that. But isn't it amazing? I I figured I just needed to heal. You know, I needed some time to, goodness, like focus on, on me, focus on Claire, focus on what was important to me. And at the time, I just, I couldn't do it. You know, you talked about it early in our first segment. You talked about the energy grief takes. And I think it's that one piece alone is the most shocking and surprising part of losing somebody. I've heard Jenny talk about it. Yep. 
Her situation's completely different than mine. She lost a husband who was serving our country. I had a long, drawn-out process. I had 22 months to say goodbye and try to do the best we could to have really good closure in my loss. But still, regardless of the loss, the amount of energy it takes, it is a physical, emotional, spiritual toll and drain that you Mm -hmm. cannot understand until you go through it. And I cannot imagine that in addition to that, you have a crime, a court, mm-hmm. a broken legal system, a, I mean, a broken, yeah, a, a difficult legal navigation process process to navigate. Yeah. Thank you, Jenny. I can't get my words straight. I'm just so in shock here. Um, we need to wrap this up. But before we do, there's a couple things I had thought about. You said the coroner had talked to you about his injuries. And that they didn't, you, you kind of had, had alluded to that it, the they director. weren't really, or the funeral director, that they re- really weren't that bad. Do you feel okay sharing with us what what do you know happened and what was the cause of his actual demise? Yes, it was the funeral director that had told me that his, he, I just remember it was, like it, it was kind of in passing when we sat down one of the times we sat down and he said, yeah, you know, his injuries weren't that bad. It was just some spots like on, on the back of his head, like bruising and things. And like I said, the, this person had just, they had hit him and I don't know what they hit him with. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't know the details of that, but, um, it had to it, be something really traumatic because it's blunt force, yeah. trauma. Blunt force trauma to the brain. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. and the amount of force that that had to take, uh, yeah. that's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he, he looked normal when I went in there and for the funeral, he, he looked normal. He didn't, he didn't have any obvious injuries, you know, it wasn't like that. So I don't know what's um, worse. Like It's just all bad. It's just all bad. There's no good picture here at all. We have to wrap this up, but I'm so glad that I followed my instincts and booked you for two part series. We're going to close up um, this one. We're going to come back. We're going to finish up your story. And then we're going to talk about you today and the great things that you are doing that I am equally as passionate about. And I'm, I've been listening to your podcast. It's fun. I can't get enough of these stories um, just because it, it's encouraging for me to know and understand that I'm not alone in this process. And this is normal. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, <laughs> Not necessarily yeah. normal to have your husband mugged and die because of it, but the process of life and loss, it happens eventually to all of us. And and we're all young, and you were just so young when it happened. Jen, tell us your website. It's widow180.com, and the podcast is Widow180, the podcast. So you can find that on all podcast platforms. I'm also on Instagram at widow 180 and our community, online community, is called the Widow Squad. And you can find information on that at widowsquad.com. That is awesome. And I'm super excited to learn more about that as well. I saw that you're considering putting together kind of a conference. I want to attend. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I would That's love coming that. coming up. I know. Yeah. I'm excited. Super excited. I'm super excited. Okay. Well, thank you so much. So we're going to wrap up and we yeah. will be back to finish the story up. Yeah, to our listeners, thank you for joining us today and hang on tight because you're going to want to come back for episode two. 
We really appreciate Jen being willing to share her story. And we know that if you're listening, you probably have a story that's helped you learn resilience as well. If you're willing to share that story with us and with our listeners, please reach out. You can contact us by email at rrpodcast at ksl.com or find us on social media. We're Relentlessly Resilient on Facebook and Relentlessly Resilient Podcast on Instagram. And remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their life. Have a great day. We'll be back soon. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.